Hey everyone, real quick before we get started, we want to tell you about a new podcast from our friends over at Stitcher. It's a serious in-depth look at the story of Heaven's Gate. The new podcast Heaven's Gate talks to people who lost loved ones and people who still believe to understand the cult's mysteries. Whatever you think you know, prepare to be surprised. It's hosted by Glenn Washington, who grew up in a cult, and if you've heard his other show, Snap Judgment, you know this will be good. Hear it for yourself. Subscribe to Heaven's Gate, the podcast, for free, wherever you listen, like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. Did you know there's a lot more Crack.com than you realize? There is. Go to Crack.com slash subscribe to get access to the Cracked Private Reserve. It's got a fancy typeface and everything, and it's got an ad-free version of our website, the power to vote on comments under our articles, you'll get a weekly newsletter, and if you do the premium tier, among other things, you get our new podcast, Cracked Mailbag. Daniel O'Brien, Cody Johnston, and other people on staff answer your questions Every week, it's exclusive to subscribers. Join that fun club by going to crack.com slash subscribe. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also kind of like a Scooby-Doo villain this week. You know that trope, right? That reads, if you don't, a Scooby-Doo villain is a perfectly nice weirdo who's assembled a perfectly nice abandoned theme park that a bunch of kids and talking dogs are running all over and treating like crap. Well, on this week's show, Hollywood's most famous writers and directors are the kids and the talking dogs, and I'm the hard-working ruined carnival owner who's saying, hang on, you flighty creative types. Maybe studio interference is a good thing. Take that. Also, I'm a ghost, probably. You know the show. If you're a movie fan, you have heard of studio interference. You know what it is. It's blamed for turning creative people's artistic brilliance into bad movies because thoughtless executives roll in and ruin it. Somehow these people became Hollywood executives without knowing what a Hollywood movie ought to contain. And that does happen. That is a real phenomenon. One famous example that's top of mind, since there's a sequel now, is the original Blade Runner. Ridley Scott's 1982 sci-fi masterpiece got released with extra voiceover and without key scenes because the studio didn't understand their own movie they were making. The studio was also sending Scott notes throughout the process. Very helpful, you know, constructive notes such as, this movie gets worse every screening. And were they all on drugs when they did this? And let me tell you, the internet is full of tales of other terrible studio notes. Sometimes they just ruin the movie. Other times we get a great movie because they got ignored. For example, Moonlight director Barry Jenkins was asked this question about his future best picture winning movie, quote, so where are the white people? End quote. Another one, writer-director Damien Chazelle showed the studio his movie Whiplash, which is about the intense relationship between a young drummer and his teacher, and the studio said to cut down the drumming parts, quote, he's good at drumming. We get it. End quote. My favorite is the producers of the remake of The Magnificent Seven. If you don't know the original, it's one of the iconic westerns, one of the iconic cowboy movies. The studio said to the producers of the remake, hey, why do the movie's cowboys have to have cowboy hats? Seems silly, right? Anyway, I know that's a damning portrait of Hollywood executives. Here's the thing, though. For every couple of movies like that, there are a ton of other movies that Hollywood executives fix 
or at least the studio comes in and says, hey, let's do X, Y, and Z, even if it's something that movie fans hate, like last-minute big changes to the creative team or not respecting the source material, sometimes those decisions are what make the movies you love great. We're going to show you tons of examples of studio interference being the interference that makes the movie work. I know it's counterintuitive. I think it's why it's fun. A lot of the examples will come from a great recent Cracked article by Nathan Kamal called Five Times the Studio Actually Knew What Was Best for the Movie. Others will come from across Hollywood history and from our guest. I'm so excited you guys were joined this week by Amy Nicholson. She is a writer, screenwriter, and critic. Too many credits to name concisely. She's also a podcaster. She's the host of Earwolf's show, The Canon, which is a movie podcast that consistently makes me see a movie completely differently. It's great. If you've never heard it, I recommend their recent episode about The Matrix with guest Cameron Esposito. They get into why The Matrix, a movie you think of as the bullet time movie, is also a movie that is queer and female-driven and revolutionary for new directors in Hollywood. Amy also did an episode with Tom Ryman and Abe Epperson of Crack Movie Club, and they did a deep dive on Tom Cruise and made me think Top Gun is good. A thought I never thought I would have because Amy had that amazing of a take on it. Anyway, she's one of the best in the business at seeing movies as an entire project and not just one person's random idea or crazy artistic whim. And the two of us had an amazing time with all kinds of movies where the studio people saved the fancy arty people's asses through the positive force of studio interference. You get to hear us have that good time right now, so please sit back or sit in some weird way the studio made you sit, even though, come on, you're an artist, man. Anyway, enjoy this look at how everything from The Wizard of Oz to the Alien franchise owes its success to executives. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I'm joined in the studio by Amy Nicholson. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, Alex. How are yeah, you? I'm doing great. I'm in the mood to talk movies, and let's get into it, shall we? Let's, let's talk totally about do it. it. I feel like it's a very underreported thing that studio notes can be good. I think it's usually, there's, you know, that trope of, oh, they're always terrible. They always ruin everything. I feel like either people never think about studio notes at all, or they only know them as very bad, right? They're only ever terrible. Yeah, we have this myth, I think, of the director-auteur artist, that everything he wants to do is probably infallible, even if you're Dennis Hopper and high on drugs and making (laughs) a five-hour version of Easy Rider that makes no sense. We're like, oh, he's an artist. Let him do it. He's crazy. I'm not getting in his way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because also I have not met a lot of studio heads. That isn't something that's come through my life. So I think, to me, my concept of studio notes are some very angry man somewhere just giving terrible advice to a movie or even just being very brusque about it. Like, I always think of Barton Fink where the one guy just yells at him, like, well, a Beery wrestling picture. What do you need, a road map? Like, just do it. <laughs> like, just go ahead and make the movie. But I mean, my current one is uh, people have been sending around and I object to the, the this as like a basic thing, the Amy Pascal emails from Sony, everybody digging through them. I thought a lot of that got yeah. gross, but there was one where she's talking about the potential of an elf movie. It's an email she's kind of sending herself, and it's just random things like, elf, does he have to eat cats? What is this even about? I don't get it. And she's just <laughs> trashing on elf, but it's, it reads almost like a haiku, and it's beautiful. Yeah, I think you emailed me one little bit of it, and yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. just... 
I would be mortified if anyone sees any of my notes about anything as I'm reading it or watching it. But also hers, like, I feel like we all kind of know what Elf is in general. She seems surprised by the existence of Elf. Like, she's being presented with this for the first time as a human. Like, just, oh, it's an alien that eats cats at all. She's probably doing a lot cooler shit in 1985. <laughs> <laughs> just driving cars off ramps. Yeah, it's really. <laughs> yeah, doing wheelies. You mentioned you mentioned Easy Rider. We have there's all kinds of movies we could talk about. I feel like also this is a phenomenon that to me I think it's kind of like an iceberg. I'd say like we only know very prominent examples of either there was a huge hit movie and then later the creators say, oh, we were given this terrible crazy note. Like I just read that the movie Hidden Figures. Apparently, Fox Searchlight told them to cut down on the math, if possible. <laughs> like, it's just a little heavy on math, the movie about people doing math, if we can, you know, reduce that. What if they were just doing Rubik's Cubes? Yeah, that's fun. Colors. We sell a toy. Boom, boom, boom. Money. I, that's all I know. <laughs> I just assume they have fistfuls of money at all times. Well, yeah, um, it's that kind of thing. Like, if the studio gives you a note and it's great, don't you want to quietly take responsibility for it and not let anybody know that it wasn't you? Yeah, I think people do that all the time. That seems like the standard move. Well, and you mentioned Easy Rider. That's one example. We have Easy Rider made in 1969. Dennis Hopper is directing, and he's doing everything, and he's on many, many drugs, apparently. Apparently, everyone was on them making it. But he uh, had someone else recut his movie for him because he apparently shot it for 12 weeks, edited it for 22 weeks, and turned in a three-hour movie, possibly five-hour movie. The accounts vary. And and then apparently someone else named Henry Jaglum, his first job in Hollywood, edits it down to 90 minutes. Hopper hates it, and then it's a smash hit movie, and he's like, that was my idea the whole time I loved it. Yeah, I right. heard even after that, he tried to get Peter Fonda to sign a fax saying that Dennis Hopper and only Dennis Hopper wrote the script for Easy Rider. After the fact, he's like, this is all me. And it, it's Whoa. kind of funny that it was Henry Jaglum who did that because he's an L.A. playwright and filmmaker here. And I think of him as the guy who does self-indulgent disasters. So the idea that he got his start coming in to help somebody else's self-indulgent disaster is wonderful. Maybe it takes one to no one because I don't know who else but a crazy person could go up against Dennis Hopper, who literally, while they were shooting the movie, would be in the parking lot screaming, this is my fucking movie. Nobody's going to take my fucking movie away from me. And I would not do anything to his fucking movie. No way. People, he really did that? He really did that. Around the crew? Oh. What a, what an unprofessional business. It's the best. Henry Jaglum, I tried to Google him some because I don't know his work, but you, are you, you're familiar with him, it sounds like. Yeah, I used to be a playwright out here in L.A., and he would do a ton of plays with his, like, muse at the time. I think she might even still be his muse, an actress named Tana Frederick. She has this giant, crazy red hair. Oh, yeah, I've seen ads for things with her in them around town. Yeah, they would put little billboards up of her stuff, like her movies and her plays that she did with him. I was a theater critic much in the same way that I am a film critic, which is I try to know as little as possible. So my editor would be like, be here at this time. And I would just show up and I would show up and be like, oh, God damn it, it's Tana Frederick and she's playing a dog and she's wearing a tutu. (laughs) I think the best things happen when you don't know what's going on. And maybe that ties into the beautiful synergy of a note. You don't know what's going on until someone tells you. Right. It just it just lands on you suddenly. I was reading stories of various writers talking about receiving notes, and one of them was telling a story about they came in and said, okay, so it's a spy and his wife, and the executive was just immediately like, no wife, go on. Just immediately. Oh, my God. <laughs> like that stage of the pitch is just, no, nah, this is out immediately. Like, how do you keep going? Do you, I think you just flat out make it up at that point. You just try to pretend you had some idea that was what they said. 
I mean, that one's funny because it ties into Goodwill Hunting, where yeah. uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, their first vision of this film was that the government would be chasing Matt Damon for some mysterious reason. They're yeah. going to overcomplicate this whole story and make it Bornean, I guess, pre-born, proto-born, and that the studio's like, meh. We don't need that. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing to read because also, yeah, Goodwill Hunting apparently started as a spy thriller. And have you seen the movie The Accountant, that Ben Affleck movie recently? I never saw that. It, it Is it tougher than it sounds? It's like a lot of action built around someone who's a math genius. There's also a lot of autism character and themes involved in it too, but it almost felt like... To me, they flipped that somehow. Like they said, ah, oh, the real Goodwill Hunting, We're gonna, I'm going to make it now as Ben Affleck. I'm going to do it years later. I think that was such a good note, though, because I get so annoyed. I used to be a script reader, and most of the scripts that like a young guy would send in would be like, it's a tough guy, and he's a spy, and he's the best at what he does. And it's like, for fuck's sake, like just write about a person. Yeah, and I like that that was the note they got on Goodwill Hunting. And apparently Goodwill Hunting has a history of multiple people fixing the movie for them or at least giving them notes that they had the grace to take and then <laughs> improve their own product because rob reiner was running uh castle rock and said no 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 the story is just about the guys and and them being in love like you don't need all the cia stuff and then they were working on the script and took terrence malick the famous director to out for dinner and said hey could you read the script and then we'll talk about it and he refused to read the script but they were telling him about the ending and he was like no 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 just do the actual ending that will be this movie he didn't phrase it that way but he said do the actual ending where she leaves and he chases her and that's it like don't do a thing where he leaves that's ridiculous the and big like happy reconvening ending that they had in mind yeah they wanted some other kind of ending where it's more the main character running around instead of no he's chasing the woman he's in love with and like that's what we're going for we had another episode of this show in the past where we were talking about just early drafts of things. And I like the idea that as a creative person, you can make something amazing just by keeping your ears open and not being too much of a jerk. If you just listen to people and run with it, it seems like that was a movie where everybody, but in particular the studio lording over them, really helped so much. And you would never know it on the screen. It's just the two of them winning an Oscar in real life. Yeah, I mean, like, buddies, we got this. We're proto geniuses. Look yeah. at us. Yeah, we're young pals. That's how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who just happened to be able to get dinner with Terrence Malick, as most young pals do. I think the story was like Terrence Malick was like friends with Affleck's godfather or something. Some kind of crazy, random family connection, too. This businessman. Yeah. I'm not related to anybody. My last name is Nicholson, <laughs> and it gets me nowhere. Another movie I want to talk about is Back to the Future, because that's one where they were planning an ending to the movie that apparently is um, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull's beginning, which is crazy. It was a thing where they were going to get from the 50s back to the 80s by putting Marty inside a lead-lined refrigerator and then going through a nuclear test. They wouldn't just nuke the fridge. They would also fire the fridge 30 years into the future somehow, too. That's insane. Yeah. Like, I saw these animated storyboards of it, and what's crazy about it is they actually animate the nuclear attack, and it's like, hi, I'm a Back to the Future movie. Oh, look, let's cut. I'm seeing the speed go up. Oh, here's the car. We're doing this. Oh, here's people's faces melting off. Like, what? Yeah, it's brutal. The storyboard artist really went for it. They were really like, like, it'll never be on screen, but the storyboard artist was like, what would a human face look like as it fell apart? It and looks calm like down. pancake batter. It looks like somebody just threw a bunch <laughs> of pancake batter on all these people. And then they grew a bunch of hair. I don't understand how that works. But I've never been in a nuclear attack. So. Yeah, I, I avoid them as, uh, on principle. 
And also, wasn't Back to the Future supposed to have a chimpanzee co-star instead of the dog? Yeah, so this was, and we're drawing heavily on a cracked article that we'll footnote for this movie and one or two others. Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, who wrote it together, they were really pushing for like, okay, there's two key things in this movie. One, nuclear blast is time time travel. Other one, chimpanzee sidekick for Doc Brown. He's got to have a chimp, which is bonkers because I feel like with any comedy, you have so little real estate for it, especially if the movie's not a full-on comedy. Like you really have have only a few key moments to be just jokes. And they would have given so many of them to a monkey in a movie that has such a perfect human-human relationship at the center of it. It's such a loss. It's It borderline inspired Rick and Morty. It inspired a couple sequels. And they would have muddled it with a monkey. I, I heard that like a Universal executive was like, I looked it up and no movie with a chimpanzee ever made any money, which I think is a really incendiary statement to make in the 80s when you have like Ronald Reagan, Bedtime for Bonzo leading the government. <laughs> right. <laughs> Going right at the president with that. So Universal, an executive had went out to, out of his office into the lobby or whatever and said, hey, assistant, go do research on every monkey movie. Tell me if they were profitable. Right? Like that had to happen. Uh, do you think they counted Planet of the Apes? I think they blew it if they didn't. That made so much money, right? They made so much money. See, if we were Zemeckis and Gale, the movie would have a monkey in it now. We would have argued this really well. Well, I wonder if that's where it came <laughs> from, because Planet of the Apes being like a time travel movie with primates, I wonder if when they were writing this original Crazy Monkey draft, they were like, we're going to have a Planet of the Apes reference in there. And it was like all building to some moment. Like some kind of, oh, right, we go back in the future and the monkeys have taken over. But luckily they're friends with a monkey who's been rolling with Doc Brown this whole time. Exactly. And he's like a dumber monkey because he can't like get dressed in little ties and shirts like the other monkeys <laughs> who've like had a profession. But it feels very cartoony to me. Like, literally make a cartoon out of it. You have Doc Brown and then you have a cartoon monkey with the same hair and jacket or something, you know. Do you count it to be a studio note that in Back to the Future... They swapped out Eric Stoltz for Michael J. Fox a couple weeks into shooting the film. As far as this overall topic goes, I feel like it can also be kind of muddy sometimes as to what is a studio note, especially like I think of modern stuff where you have uh, Kathleen Kennedy at Disney or Kevin Feige doing Marvel Disney, like someone who is part of the studio but also very, very heavily involved creatively and... It's the kind of thing where it is or isn't a studio note. I feel like the good examples indicate that either studio notes are a little bit fictional sometimes or they are just much better than we expect. So then do you believe the Back to the Future studio note that they wanted to call the movie Spaceman from Pluto? Hold on, what? That's what they (laughs) They wanted wanted to call call it. it They wanted to call it Spaceman from Pluto. Yeah, they thought movies with the word future in it didn't do well, but I guess movies with the word Pluto do excellent. Man, whoever they're doing very specific research at Universal in the 80s. I mean, Spaceman from Pluto? What movie would that have even been? There's no Pluto, there's no space? Yeah, it must be a title that would be based on a misunderstanding in the internal movie. Oh, when he goes through the past and she thinks he's Calvin Klein. Yeah, some kind of like, oh, you must be an alien with powers or something since you have 80s underwear. Some kind of crazy thing. Man, Spaceman from Pluto. What a disaster they avoided. I know, but now I want to make that movie with some other title. I mean, as a way of reclaiming Pluto, you know, our long-lost planet. Yeah, well, as soon as you said movie Pluto, I thought Pluto Nash, which is a different movie, the Eddie Eddie Murphy one. That was, like, my first go-to for it in my head. I heard that Pluto actually recalled itself from being a planet because it was so embarrassed by the adventures of Pluto Nash. (laughs) It said, don't bring me into this, you guys. I'm not part of your solar system. (laughs) 
Pluto's kind of looking down. He's like, new phone, who this? <laughs> <laughs> There's one space thing in that uh, Cracked article, uh, which is the overall Alien franchise. And it points out that the writers of the movie, the first Alien movie, Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Chisett, they wanted to call the movie Star Beast, which on its own is not disastrous, probably. Maybe you make a good movie called Star Beast. Doesn't sound good. The studio forced them to include a robot character. It forced them to include Ash, who is then working for the corporation. And that's it's an amazing twist that I think makes the whole movie go. And the studio forced them to do it. And they were like, that is a terrible idea. We will fight this every step of the way. And then they did it anyway, and it was great. And then now they can't let it go. And now every time you watch an alien movie, you're like, who's the cyborg? Can we figure this out already? That's true. It really is. It's heavy in it, especially because they did it so well with Lance Henriksen and have done it so well with Michael Fassbender, even within movies that don't always work, especially the ones Fassbender's in I'm not that big on. It does seem like it's such an overwhelming trope of the series now. It should just be called Robot. It should. Yeah. Like, that's what drives me nuts about the Alien franchise is that the people in these movies always make the same mistakes. And they're operating in the same timeline, but every single movie is like, well, we're heading home for our our mission. Things are going well. Oh, there's a bleep. Let's go check it out. And it's like, guys, just somebody beam a message into space. Never check out a bleep. And all of this will be fine. Like, let's go check out this bleep. Let's put my nose in a thing. Everything's fine. Let's have the guy who got attacked go on the ship. We're fine. I mean, this is what happens in literally every Alien film. Uh, how, How much of a Star Trek fan are you? In general. Not the biggest. It. I grew up on the original series. We had it all on VHS at the library. And I, even as a kid, would be like, they keep sending the top couple people to the planet and they keep just sticking their fingers or tricorders into whatever <laughs> they find. Surely science fiction has advanced beyond this. No, the alien crews always just touch a black oozing thing yeah. and are surprised when things go wrong. Kirk, cue the <laughs> finger probe. Boink. <laughs> I don't know. It worked Terrible last time. Maybe it's <laughs> <Right>. fine. <laughs> well, isn't Alien also the franchise where, you know, it gets all this compliments for Sigourney Weaver being such an awesome female character at the center of it? Yeah. But they weren't intending to make her female at all. That the studio <laughs> was like, you know what? I think it was Alan Ladd, actually, who was the president of Fox. He was looking around at all of the slasher movies that were starting to come out. And this is basically a slasher film except for the robot. Yeah. And thinking like... What if we had a cool woman in peril and made the film around her? Let's just pick that character and make it a girl. And I think they literally just switched it from he to she, which to me is perfect. Like, I love that in a film where it could just kind of go either way. We talked about Trek a little bit. Um, Wrath of Khan. Well, and there's a great episode of the canon in the past about Wrath of Khan as well. Uh, Oh, no, you heard that. Then you don't like me. (laughs) it's okay not everyone has to like it but (laughs) I love it very deeply and it's I think my favorite example of a movie where the studio did like every studio noty studio overreach Hollywoody mistake that fans get mad about and it turned out great it just turned out amazingly I think it felt distinctive I do feel like in the scheme of the movies that they were making yeah I think they even accidentally, well, the the specific things they did, they were coming off of the first movie, which had struggled somewhat in terms of the production and financially, and was also a very 2001 Space Odyssey kind of thing. And so they said, okay, we've got a couple random drafts of it. Let's just bring in this director, Nicholas Meyer, who does not like Star Trek, and we'll have him just synthesize the scripts and start making a movie, and here we go. And Nicholas Meyer spent all of 12 days finishing the script, so... Random director who's not a fan. Then they spent way too short of a time on the script. And then they had him turn it into a, like, 
naval combat in space movie. He said he was specifically inspired by Horatio Hornblower, which is a story of like a centuries ago naval captain in the sailing ships era, like fighting other ships with cannons. And he was like, oh, I'll just do that as Star Trek. I don't know who's seen the A&E miniseries of Horatio Hornblower. Way into it, but I don't necessarily <laughs> need that in Star Trek. It's kind of a weird choice. Wow, I didn't realize I was sitting down with somebody so cool. <laughs> I think that what you're explaining is such a perfect metaphor for this whole idea of studio interference that I think that the peril with directors is that, especially once they get more power and people are like, oh, you're a genius, Ridley Scott, they just go off the deep end. They get really self-indulgent, and you need that fresh pair of eyes to be like, and... Yeah. You don't really have to go this far. You don't really have to add this extra hour into, like, say, Apocalypse Now. You know, we're fine. We're fine. Oh, man. Yeah, we don't need to see, like, the French people on the plantation running around. You're a writer and playwright, too. I feel like anything I create, we we all need an editor, you know? Like, you remember the whole process of making it, and you remember how much you loved certain specific bits of it. And so then if no one tells you you have to let certain individual elements of it go, you just don't. You're like, great, I'm keeping the weird, crazy sequence where there's a chimp. I'm still in Back to the Future mode. It's all chimps. <laughs> so uh, I was talking about sailing ships and Horatio Hornblower. So they brought in a director, doesn't like the franchise, wrote, wrote the script way too quickly, turned it into a sailing ship battle. And uh, there's even a quote where he said, where I found my way in on Khan was that it reminded me of these books I read about Captain Horatio Hornblower, this English naval captain during the Napoleonic era. And so I said, okay, this is Hornblower in outer space, which it had never been. It was never that. I, I added last bit. So then beyond that, they also made this movie this very specific way that it had never been. They also initially had Spock die, and then he's just dead. And they changed it because test audiences hated it. So they're also doing last-minute changes based on testing, which not everybody loves because fans think that test audiences aren't fans. And then they also changed it because Leonard Nimoy changed his mind about whether to come back to the series. Apparently, going into Wrath of Khan, he wanted out after that. He wanted to be done. And then he had such a nice time making Wrath of Khan, he wanted to come back. And so then they added the whole thing of Spock's coffin ending up on the Genesis planet and then him being brought back to life. And if you haven't seen the movie, what I just said sounds really dumb. It works. It's great. Really into it. Sets up Star Trek Three Search for Spock. Really fun. Wow, but still, just when I thought he was out, he got pulled back in. <laughs> I mean, you actually just made me think of another studio note about death, which is Fatal Attraction. Oh, really? Yeah, so Fatal Attraction, you know, of course, there's this, like, tormented love affair between Glenn Close and Michael Douglas. But Sherry Lansing really wanted to do this film that also understood Glenn Close's point of view. But the more oh, they started man. to make Fatal Attraction, the more it became that Michael Douglas is just a really good guy and Glenn Close is totally crazy, mm. which really messed with everybody even making the film, especially Glenn Close. And so when they get to the end of the film, the first way they shot it was that Glenn Close was going to kill herself while listening to Madame Butterfly. And when test audiences saw it, they thought, no, we hate this woman so much. You've made us hate this character so much that we want her to die. Like, we want her to actually get murdered by these people. We want her to get killed. Yeah. Like, suicide is not enough. And it has it, to be stabby. Exactly. Yeah. And it really, really tore apart uh, Sherry Lansing because she loved that character so much and Glenn Close didn't want to reshoot it. Nobody wanted to reshoot it and make Glenn Close get murdered. Yeah. And yet it was just a note that they decided they had to do it and then they did it and then it made a bazillion dollars and it was in the top ten of the box office this year. But I think it made everybody feel dirty. It was like a studio note that even the studio hated giving. That seemed like such a straight ahead. They just wanted to make that kind of movie where she's evil and he's nice. And that's it. I had no idea there was so much fraught trying to make it better. <laughs> like yeah. Trying to make Michael it more Douglas human. Michael Douglas is an asshole. 
Yeah. Yeah. But it's like you can watch the movie and be like, no, he's the good guy. I mean, like, because it's also this movie that's demonizing working women in the 80s, which was just such a huge topic. And it's being produced by one of the few really powerful working women in Hollywood. And for her to be like, yeah, I guess working women, they're just so unstable. I mean, it's awful. It's also the kind of movie that I had no idea there were women involved in making it. It seems like such a male-driven perspective, and I guess they fell into that by accident. Yeah. Glenn yeah. Close really tried to boycott having to do it, and I think they just were forced to strong her. Like, girl, I'm sorry. You don't get a choice in this. Wow. It reminds me of Predator because apparently when John McTiernan was making Predator, the studio told him more gunfire. We really need more gunfire. Just in, and he was like, in a specific way, or is it? Did we shoot it wrong? They're like, no, just more gunfire. We really need more gunfire in the film, which is not a great note on its face. I think he was resistant to the studio note, and so he had them way, way overdo it. He added it by doing that one scene of the movie where there's kind of a flash of the predator, and then it invisibles away, and then. Arnold and the guys just fire bullets into the woods for a solid minute. I actually I timed it out. It's a solid minute of just a hail of bullets going into logs and trees and stuff because they figure, oh, it's somewhere over there. We'll just get it. And John McTiernan was like, I'm going to make this ironic. Like, obviously, this is so over the top that this is really stupid. And everyone will see that and they'll be like, ah, what a wise anti-gun guy John McTiernan is. And I think you can read it that way. And you can also read it in the big, dumb, fun action movie way. And both of those, to me, work better than not having it at all. You know what I mean? Like, I think the studio really helped whether or not anyone was willing to do it. You're right. Like, a Predator film should not have just an average tasteful amount of bullets. Yeah. I mean, why not just go for broke? Yeah, it's a muscle man and an alien in the rainforest. Like, let's do it. Let's, let's blow up the rainforest. <laughs> but I do like that idea of a director thinking he can outsmart a studio note and failing. Yeah. Because to me, I think that's part of what happened in Blade Runner, and this is, I don't know if this is true or if this is just me making it up, but that part of why the Harrison Ford narration is so bad is because he just didn't want to do it, so he did it really badly, hoping that they'd be like, okay, you're right, this narration sucks. But instead <laughs> it just happened, and they're like, fine, you did it, thank God, and then it went out with bad narration, and what are you going to do? I love that idea of the self-sabotage thing, because there, there's the famous Trek TV show example where they shot Kirk and Uhura doing a kiss, and then this, the network was like, you need to shoot something without that. We're very afraid of that. And so then they botched every take. of they, like, they did funny faces in the background, like full-on sabotage of all the takes. <laughs> and so then the studio had to use it because they found out too late and they shot ever, only shot one version that worked. Just flat out on purpose doing it wrong, but the crew and people involved were just sent it to the network and were like, okay, there you go. And then they did the interracial kiss on television, you know? And I, I do think there's a lot of low-key stuff like that Blade Runner narration where you can just tell sometimes, I think, that they're really not on board with what they're going through with. No, but has anybody ever tried to sabotage the studio more than, say, like, during the filming of American History X, where the director just went absolutely mental, where, where Tony <laughs> Kay was, like, taking out ads in newspapers saying, I object to this cut of this film, take my name off, make my name. I'm making it up, but I think he wanted his name to be something like... Goosey Banana, that's fake, but in like, <laughs> fine, you can leave my name on, but it's Goosey Banana now. And just completely going at public war. I mean, public war is it, yeah. so rare. I like the idea that Alan Smithy was not a hard enough uh, refusal for him. Like, he had to come up with a new crazier name. Yeah, it has to be like, <laughs> fuck this, Mick, fuck this studio or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he said he plays something like 40 ads, just trying to make sure people didn't think it was his film. But then people liked the film, so what are you going to do? 
I guess pretend the ads never happened and just be like, I'm the brilliant director now. I've done it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that seems like one where I think I read that Edward Norton is always difficult on sets, or at least that's the reputation with him. And so he and a guy from the studio re-edited the movie to feature more Edward Norton, which is probably a good idea. That movie and that character, he's he's great in the movie, and it should be about that one character and that one character's journey. Yeah, I don't know what else you would have put in the movie if it wasn't about him. I guess it was just a lot shorter. But the idea of Edward Norton <laughs> sitting there and saying, you know what this movie could use is more Edward Norton. <laughs> I haven't seen American History X in a really long time. This is a movie I feel like I should go back and check out. I mean, I remember seeing this when I was pretty young and thinking, this is the deepest, most amazing film I've ever seen in my life. And I have no idea if it holds yeah. up to that. But reading about what a crazy person Tony Kay is, like he's a guy who literally punched a wall because he was so mad about the way the editing was going and broke his hand. I mean, <laughs> could this guy have made the best film about dealing with anger? I, it, how? But yeah. I felt like he did at the time. Oddly, I have that same memory of seeing it. I think I was a teenager, like relatively young and feeling like this is an amazing movie. Also feeling like I am exploring a new realm of cinema. This is darker than anything I've ever seen. I'm really reaching as a human. I'm growing. Yeah, I feel like it would be very different now probably seeing it. I'm sure it's very gripping and really interesting. It is interesting to me to imagine the directors seeing that gripping, interesting movie come together and punch a wall out of anger just because it's not his anymore, you know? Yeah, and getting it pulled from the Toronto Film Festival, being like, I give, do not give you permission to show this in the film festival that will make this film. He really did that? He really did that. I can't, I can't believe he knocked it out of a major film festival just to try to hold it back. I think it was his first movie, too. I love the idea of him punching a wall, but also I wish, because film movie credits are so long, there's so much room in there. I wish they would list all the stuff people broke in creative frustration as a movie was made, because that, that is such a thing. In sports especially, because everything they're doing is televised, there's famous examples of like either a player celebrating or being angry and self-injuring, like just outside of the play, like there's a quarterback who headbutted a wall out of happiness and then he hurt himself because he headbutted a wall. Or guys who like uh, slap a baseball bat in frustration and hurt their hand, you know. I want to know how much a movie involves broken walls, broken chairs, thrown coffees, you know, just in a general (laughs) like like Jack Bauer kill count kind of way. I want to be aware of it. Technology rules. It makes everything on demand in your life except that post office. Ah, darn it. It's that brick and mortar place where you're just stuck in lines and you have to drive there and everything. Well, not anymore. Stamps.com lets you do anything you can do at the post office right from your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. So you can get postage whenever you need it 24-7. I don't know how many times I struggled to Google the hours of my post office before I used stamps.com. Now I use it for all of my letter mail, all of my packages, everything I would need to send. I just knock it out through their service. And they also sent me a digital scale so I can just weigh stuff. And I've said before on the show, one of my favorite games, now America's favorite game, is Weigh That Thing. I guess what the weight is, I find out and I entertain just myself. You can do that too. Right now, use my code CRACKED for this special offer of a four-week trial, including postage and a digital scale. You can play the game that America loves, or just me. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in CRACKED. That's Stamps.com. Enter code CRACKED to get the special offer. 
and let them know you're a fan of cool podcasts. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Support for today's show comes from ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Well, the place to do it is ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. It's all taken care of. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard because ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. You can find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. Forrest Gump to me is one of the most insane movies that was just adapted or warped really or sanitized or sugar-coated or whatever one you want to call it from the original book by Winston Groom. Yeah. Which was, did you ever read like Candy or any of those Terry Southern novels about protagonists who just happen to be floating along and crazy things happen to them? No, I haven't read him. Yeah. Oh, Terry Southern Candy is like quadruple X and crazy. And this is Winston Groom's uh, original Forrest Gump was like the male candy, where it's just this big, heavy slob. I mean, the Forrest Gump that he wrote in the book wasn't supposed to be a runner. He was supposed to be a giant who was like a wrestler, and he used to live with cannibals, and he went to space, and he had a lot of sex in the book. Like, it's a dirty, (laughs) crazy, weird book. And then, you know, Zemeckis reads it, and he's like, I see something in this. I don't know what it is, but he sees something just completely different than whatever the book was, and redoes it to be this, like, friendly, clean-living guy. So they just took his book and said, oh, yeah, the South. And that was all they kept? Was that it? Yeah, they're like, (laughs) guy goes around and meets a bunch of random people. For this idea, like, in the original book, he does things like bone Raquel Welch. And here they're like, oh, no, he doesn't do that. He invests in Apple stock and he becomes really wealthy. Wow. It's super weird. It says so much about the kind of life we idealized in the 90s. This clean living, totally apolitical, doesn't do anything to offend anybody, makes smart investment decisions, and yet at the same time is this really, I find, soulless and terrifying movie about a guy who doesn't care about anything that happens to anybody around him. Yeah. That all these people are living these really interesting lives, like Robin Wright Penn, and he just doesn't care that his mother's like prostituting herself to get him into school, and he's like, okay, and he just, none of it registers. I mean, Forrest Gump terrifies me when I watch it. Which is why I get that it made Winston Groom so mad that when it was over, and by the way, he like was cheated out of millions of dollars by Paramount. They like pretended like Forrest Gump lost a bunch of money so they didn't have to pay him for his book. Oh, wow. So he wrote a sequel just to kind of fuck with them. (laughs) And in the sequel, it's crazy. Like if in the book everything goes okay for Forrest Gump and he lives kind of an interesting life, in the sequel, he like gets embroiled in Iran-Contra, he screws up the recipe for new Coke, he wrecks the Exxon Valdez, and he basically <laughs> wrote a book that was like, I dare you to make a movie out of this, and just screwed over everybody, which is amazing. That's the best thing about Forrest Gump. I totally get what you're saying about 
how the movie Forrest Gump does feel a little soulless, like, especially because he just keeps having incredible skills in places. But other than that, that central romance kind of drives it forward and makes it work. I feel like he has almost no empathy for anyone around him. Part of how he becomes so rich is because his buddy Bubba dies in the war. Yeah. And then he comes home and takes over his shrimping boat. And then the reason, do you remember this? The reason why his shrimping boat makes him wealthy is because there's a hurricane and literally everybody else's shrimping boat gets destroyed. Every other poor person in this area gets their shrimping boat destroyed. Right. But Forrest Gump happens to be fine, and so he becomes rich. <laughs> and no one cares about anybody else who got their ship ruined. I mean, this, this movie is so screwed up. I always feel like he's sort of a pan or sprite kind of figure who's meant to torment Lieutenant Dan. They just constantly <laughs> bother him at all times. In general, I feel like what the studio pulled out does seem to work. I feel like it's hard to make a... I don't know the exact Terry Southern reference or anything, but it is hard to make a movie out of those guys and have it play as a story. I feel like it works almost better in literature probably because you can pick it up and experience it and put it away and be like, well, I've done that. But if I was in like a room of people watching it, it would be different. But still, I think it's really screwed up that you know, the Oscars before this, they gave the main prize to Schindler's List and they're like, all right, let's just give it to Forrest Gump, like a movie that has <laughs> zero moral conscience. Another novel they switched up in Hollywood is Jurassic Park because um, apparently Michael Crichton was writing the novel and he initially wrote it as a story about the kids kind of from the kids' perspective and everyone he showed it to hated it. And then he tried it as a very dark adult thing that's mainly about fear of science and people loved it and it was a smash hit. And then when Hollywood got it, they were like, nope, back to the opposite of your intent. It's about kids. It's about family. Will Sam Neill and Laura Dern have a baby? We're going to find out. Like, that's the movie Jurassic Park. And I feel like that was a good move by the studio. Like, I, I maybe I've just seen too many fear of science movies lately, but it's I, I am up for, like, that kind of just fun version of a dinosaur story that was uh, uh, formative to me as a kid. <laughs> It's true. I mean, I remember dimly reading the original Jurassic Park when I was a kid around the time the movie came out, which was probably too bloody for me to be reading. Yeah. But that book seemed to hate the dinosaurs. Yeah, they're just monsters. And the people who made them are just jerks. And you outrun them, and then that's the book. Yeah, I think it's such a smart change. I think you're right. Because I love the idea that even the Dr. Hammond who makes all of these dinosaurs possible is not a bad guy. Like, honestly, yeah. even watching all of these Jurassic Park movies and even reading the books, if you were like, hey, do you want to make a Jurassic Park? I'd be like, yes, everything will be fine. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. that infection in him, that joy, and the joy that you see in Sam Neill's face that, you know what, even if we die, like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, where there's a problem in the Alien franchise of why do they keep doing the same dumb thing, it makes a Jurassic Park franchise work. Like, of course they keep doing this dumb thing. It's great. You get to grow dinosaurs. Exactly. And maybe this time it'll work. I would sell my car to go to Jurassic Park, even if I knew I had like a one in three chance of getting eaten by a raptor. Yeah. Well, you'd probably come away from the park with a Jeep or something. Because yeah, as people keep getting eliminated, you know, you can keep one of the helicopters or whatever. It's cool. <laughs> That's you know. true. Correct me if I'm wrong, but dinosaurs don't really even get killed in the movie Jurassic Park. Yeah, not really, I guess. It's a lot of just running from them. Yeah, because uh, Muldoon gets eaten. He seems like the prime candidate to kill one. Uh, but he, it's, she's too clever, and he's eaten. And then, and then I think they just flee all the time, yeah. That's good. I mean, you go to yeah. all effort to make them live. Why kill them? Right, exactly. Yeah, let them, let them just be and overrun the island and eventually come to San Diego or whatever happens in the later ones. Wait, yeah. but wait, 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 wait. But in the book, now I'm remembering, they napalm the entire island and everything dies. 
yeah, it's pretty hardcore. Uh, yeah, the movie they were like, no, this is about children, and we helicopter away. Yeah. Can you imagine all the kids who like got obsessed with dinosaurs because of Jurassic Park? If that movie had ended with them napalming the entire island. Yeah, it's uh, it's such a it's an alien thing again. It's like nuke it from orbit. You just mm-hmm. have to, like <laughs> they nuke Jurassic Park from orbit. Kill it with fire. Yeah. <laughs> There's one other kid one I wanted to bring in. Have you seen um, How to Train Your Dragon or that series? I saw it once. It's based on a children's book that is a a very, very childlike story. And then they were starting to make the movie as just a very, very childlike children's book story. And then they brought in new directors partway through. Uh, Hollywood meddling, right? New directors halfway through this. Terrible. And it was a team of directors named Chris Sanders and Dean DeBlas who did Lilo and Stitch and some other movies. But they came in and said, we need to make the main dragon big enough for the main character to ride it. That's the change we need to make. That seems really obvious. Why couldn't you ride it in the first place? What's the point of a dragon you can't ride? Exactly. If you've seen the movie, that's basically the movie is riding a dragon. Like that's the whole thing. It's uh, it's unimaginable to me what that would be if it's just him standing on the ground with his dragon watching stuff happen. Doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm like feeding the dragon like... A duck at Disneyland. How small are we talking? I can't even picture it. It was, the canon of it was the original version. It would be, I think it was called like a common garden dragon was the species or something like that. So it'd probably be about dog sized, not a rideable dog. I don't know what that would be. But yeah, in, in the movie, it's it's like a steed. Like he can really get on it and it has a fun face and, you know, it goes places. But yeah, it would just be like a pet he like has standing next to him. Pixar gets a lot of credit for having the guts to like scrap a movie and start back over again yeah but the one that really bothers me and that i think they did it wrong is when they did that to the movie brave oh yeah i don't know much about the process of that i know i wasn't that into the movie yeah i mean brave was going to be the first pixar movie directed by a woman and it was going to be like a really personal story for her about being a young woman like learning to have your power you know and that sounds kind of cheesy when i'm talking about it but, you know, the character of Merida with all the crazy red hair is really cool. And the movie starts off with these standard fairy tale tropes or almost even like Greek myth ones where she's got to get married to the suitor who can best shoot the arrow. Yeah, it's very feudal and myth- mythological. Yeah, and you watch the first part of this movie and you watch this like really spunky girl and you're like, I like whatever she's doing. And then she runs away and she goes to the witch's cave and you're like, I'm into this movie. I'm totally down. And then about half an hour into it, that's basically when I think they scrapped everything that came after it and hired a guy to just take over Brave and then turned it into, oh, uh, somebody turns into a bear. That would, just, make, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, it turns into like a completely different film. It's got no interest in anything the film is doing at the beginning. And it just completely about faces and becomes generic, which is such a bummer. I mean, I'm Scottish a little bit, <laughs> but having a family tartan, you have like a really badass Scottish heroine just being amazing is great. And then she's a bear. I remember coming out of it thinking, like, why wasn't the title of the movie, like, Bears? or something? You know, it was just halfway through, it's suddenly a movie about a bunch of people who have turned into bears and figuring out what to do about it. It's such a strange turn. Yeah, yeah it feels like they just hired a dude and then just slapped anything on it. Yeah. And then if you listen closely, this is the thing that really drives me nuts about Brave. I mean, I think this is really one of the worst studio decisions Pixar's ever made, honestly. At the end of the movie, when everything's fine and nobody's a bear anymore... Her dad is like, you know what? I respect your authority. I respect your spunk. You don't have to get married yet. And that's like the happy ending. It's not that she doesn't have to get married to one of these guys. He's like, I'll give you some more time before you have to get married to one of those same three guys that you ran away from in the first part of this film. I forgot that. It's just, we'll delay it a bit. 
Yeah, that's wow. her great success. <laughs> I mean, I have Pixar just really, they really fell off the cliff with that one. Early Pixar, when they, when they were really new and heading on all cylinders, I think they were an entire studio built on good studio notes. Like It was an entire thing based on the couple of people who had made Toy Story and made it work intervening in every movie from there. It makes me feel like Pixar, because it was mainly dudes. You know, I don't usually pull like the dudes are annoying card on this, but like with this one, it felt like a bunch of dudes who were like, we did Toy Story coming in and saying, we don't get your woman film. That would definitely make sense. Yeah. Prior to that, they were all sort of boy movies or both gender movies, all gender movies that probably didn't bite them in the ass yet. Because with uh, Toy Story 2 is... As far as a progression as a studio, they made Toy Story, then they were making A Bug's Life and Toy Story 2 sort of at the same time. And they had one original director named Ash Brannon kind of steering Toy Story 2, and then they felt like there were problems with it, so they brought Lee Unkrich over when he was done with A Bug's Life, and then they brought more and more people in. And they ended up completely scrapping the movie and redoing it in six months to still meet their release date in November 99. And that seems almost impossible with that kind of movie and also seems like the kind of decision where you read about a studio doing that and then the end of the story is, and it failed because they meddled with it a bunch and they messed with it. (laughs) But it ended up working pretty well. That is oddly probably the least strong of the three Toy Story movies, but still good. All three of those are a solid trilogy. Maybe that example is what gave that studio the confidence to feel like they could just mess with anything at that point. Like, we pulled it off. Yeah, maybe then it was a problem later. That's also, uh, there's a story about Toy Story 2 because they, when they were scrapping that movie, they were scrapping a movie that they had also painstakingly saved because apparently when they were making it, they had some kind of data backup process just throughout the production to make sure they kept all their stuff. And somebody at some part of the company put in a wrong command. And so instead, the data process started deleting everything. And they lost 90% of the movie when they were most of the way done, which is terrifying. They had one person, the supervising technical director, Galen Sussman, was home because she had just had a baby. And so she had a workstation that she was working from home on, and it was separate from the network. And so they loaded that computer into her Volvo, drove it back to the main headquarters, and then painstakingly re-pieced together the entire movie from just her computer that hadn't been corrupted by that thing. Now I'm picturing a rival studio knowing this is happening and hitting her car. (laughs) <laughs> Being like, we can do this we can take them down internally the story is they call it the hundred million dollar volvo because it contained that much value of movie as it was driving it back to the building <laughs> apparently that brain trust is uh the five men uh, and I, I agree that's probably what happened with brave uh but john lasseter andrew stanton pete doctor lee unkrich and joe ranft them just working together intervening all the time for a while was very successful even though on the face of it that sounds like it would be like if Zack Snyder intervened in every Warner Brothers movie all year, all the time. You know what I mean? That sounds terrible. But uh, this group knew how to do it and had a system working and, and was able to make it work. If we look back to the 80s again for a bit, there's one story that I love where there's one idea that Hollywood kind of accidentally turned into three movies just through the power of the studio pulling all the levers all the time. Apparently, there was one executive who got traffic stopped in a nice part of Hollywood and just thought there was something funny to him about the idea of cops being in a nice neighborhood, I guess. But it led to... This is pre-OJ. Yeah, exactly. So that that led to the script for an idea they called Beverly Hills Cop, 
And they were like, oh, we're a studio. We got to find somebody to do it. So I feel like starting a movie from an executive's anecdote is like something you hear about as, oh, what a terrible idea for that studio. But they did that. And then they cast Sylvester Stallone as the lead. And then Stallone said, great, thanks for the script. I'm going to completely rewrite it and make it very action heavy. And then two weeks before shooting, the studio notices this, fires Stallone. They're like, no, we can't do that. We're not going to do that. And then rapidly recast Eddie Murphy for it. And all that sounds disastrous. Sounds like a really bad, like, they're all great, but just that approach to it of just suddenly making those decisions, that sounds terrible. And then they were rewriting the script as they made Beverly Hills Cop, which is also another thing that you hear like, ah, here goes the studio underbaking the script. And then it turned out great. It was a fantastic movie. I don't think of Sylvester Stallone as a very self-reflexive guy. And I think this anecdote really encapsulates it (laughs) because his note, he was talking about it, I think, years later during an interview. And he said, oh, man, like my Beverly Hills Cop would have been so awesome because it opens with a scene that looks like Saving Private Ryan. And you're like, what? And he's still just convinced (laughs) that his version of Beverly Hills Cop would have been better than everybody else's. And he changed his character's name. Instead of Axel Foley, he was like, no, 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 not tough enough. It's got to be Axel Cabretti. (laughs) What? Not tough enough, not Italian enough, not enough snakes. We're doing it all. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we got to crank these snakes up to 11. Cocaine, please. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, because what what Sylvester Stone did after this, basically, was didn't he take this idea and turn it into Cobra? He was like, well, I already have this badass guy named Cobretti. I'm just going to make him Cobra. You can't take this away from me. So he, yeah, apparently he left um, Paramount and then went over to Warner Brothers and made Cobra with a guy whose last name is Cobretti and made exactly the thing he said where it's it's all gunfire and it's all violence and it's all just people shooting each other all the time. And then Beverly Hills Cop has jokes, you know, and all that. And so both those movies come out of that. And then also the producers of Beverly Hills Cop, Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, leave Paramount for Columbia and then say, oh, we like the template of a black cop in a new town trying to figure it out. We'll just do two black cops with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence and make bad boys. And so then one exec having one idea on a traffic stop creates three movies at three different studios that are all hits. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's a journey, you know? It's a journey. And it also <laughs> just seems like these films feel like they should have happened anyways. That a bunch of monkeys or Stallones pounding on typewriters probably would have come up with all of these films. Oh, yeah, definitely. I feel like the stars drive all of them, and the stars template what they all are, which happens with a lot of movies. But that's another thing where I think the studio helped, because the studio, if they are not that interested in the specifics of the creative part of it, would just be like, no, template the movie to the star. Boom, done, lunch, let's go. Well, yeah, because like, that didn't, works. didn't they want Bad Boys to actually star John Lovett and Dana Carvey? Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's who they wrote it for. It was supposed to be like... <laughs> A young buddy cut movie starring two kind of older comedians from Saturday Night Live who don't look athletic at all. <laughs> they're like Martin Lawrence, I think, is a better choice. They are not. They're not the baddest of boys. I don't think. I don't think they're the ones. <laughs> Man, imagine Dana Carvey driving that Hummer through that neighborhood in Bad Boys Two. Wouldn't make it. He'd just be doing voices and stuff. It would be. <laughs> but what if, just as a thought experiment, what if John Lovett and Dana Carvey were capable of playing it straight? And actually being awesome cops. You do, you see more and more a comedi- like older comedians doing serious parts. Like, I'm sure literally no one else has seen Damages season four, but Martin Short is very stern in it. Like, he's a hardcore, evil prosecutor in it. And it's, it's really interesting. Or like yeah. Albert Brooks in Drive. That's a 
way better example than Damages Season 4. That's exactly it. Yeah. I think a lot more people have seen Damages Season 4. I don't know. I'm kidding. It's I don't a cultural know. touchstone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Speaking of seeing things on TV, uh, Shawshank Redemption. What a touchstone of cable and also just our lives because it's an amazing movie. Whoa. The studio changed the ending of it. Well, they did kind of the inverse of the Goodwill Hunting ending. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. if Goodwill Hunting was like, let's make it a little ambiguous, let's have him go chase after her, let's have him you be proactive in this. Yeah. With Shawshank, I think it was supposed to be like you didn't quite know if Morgan Freeman was gonna make it to like his beautiful desert beach hideaway. Yeah. And then they're like, No, 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 no. They've been through too much. They deserve to like hang out on the beach. Yeah, that's so it's so pleasant and yeah. and different from the book. Apparently the book it really just ends with he starts heading there and who knows. Yeah, I mean, because his last lines that he even says in the movie are, I hope, I hope. So it's got this idea of hoping. But then the studio's like, you know what, catharsis. I mean, it's interesting <laughs> to me how how they can just make different notes for the different tones. Uh, that sounds like a really Captain Obvious thing to say. But no, to know yeah. that one should end on an open note and one should end on a capper. I mean, I would think that the audiences of Shawshank and Goodwill Hunting would overlap. They seem like pretty similar movies to me. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And yet, we have to do them totally differently. Yeah, and it must be the amount of pain in the one's middle versus the pain in the other one. And when also, and I feel like with all of these notes, we're kind of running into a question of studio people want these movies to succeed too. Like they're just as invested in the movie, literally invested in the movie, (laughs) making money and working out. And so it's curious to me how I think we expect them to be roadblocks to it too. Like if it's just a talent thing or something. When in actuality, they're often very, very hoping to help. Yeah, they, they really want to make it work. <laughs> yeah, they're going to get fired if it doesn't. They've got a stake in this, too. Yeah. It makes me think, actually, of, you know, as a critic, I think a thing that I hear and a lot of other critics hear a lot is, well, if you're a critic and you have so many opinions, why don't you just do this yourself? Oh. And I've never wanted to because, to me, the fun of talking about movies as a critic is you get to talk about, like, seven movies a week. You know, tomorrow I have to do radio and talk about 10 movies. And you get to think about so many things. Whereas if you're like crazy man Tony Kay working on American History X, one movie is your entire life. You can't think about anything else. So I feel like studio executives have a better perspective sometimes, maybe, than the filmmaker. Although that said, I mean, when one of the most famous film critics ever, Pauline Kael, quit being a film critic for a little bit and then moved to Hollywood to become a production executive... She totally bombed out and hated it and left and kind of tail between her legs went back to The New Yorker. That makes sense to me, partly because I've always thought, oh, criticism as an art, like it's its own thing. I'd never thought of that aspect of you also just get to think about a lot of different things. And I feel like one of our mental pictures of executives is, oh, they're just always having lunches and coffees with people. Like that's all they do is meet for lunch, meet for coffee, consume drinks. But like that's them doing the work. That's them thinking about 10 different projects and talking to all the people involved. I mean, let's hope so. Or they're just, you know, or they're just, yeah, snorting but... cocaine snakes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think it is always interesting to kind of do what we're doing and question this idea of, the unflappable auteur, you know, because even auteur theory is such a new thing in our history, relatively speaking, in like the grand scheme of Hollywood. Yeah. Where you have something like, say, The Wizard of Oz come out, which went through so many directors, and it was never thought of as a director's film. It was thought of as a studio film. Like, yeah. who are the producers? Who was the cast? And we didn't think of it as like this passion project back then. You know, I think we had almost maybe a slightly healthier view of who was responsible for a movie being good. Because now I think we do attribute... Everything to the biggest name. Oh, truly, yeah. 
or or we I think also back then people just didn't think about that stuff at all. Like, and even today, there's tons of movie viewers who aren't thinking about who directed it or who wrote it. And back then, it was just I'm going to go see a movie, and then the movie will be presented to me, and I'll I'll think about the stars probably because they're so visible. But I feel like people didn't think about the Wizard of Oz having 14 screenwriters and five directors all make different pieces of it and write different pieces of it. Exactly. And I think we even forget that The Wizard of Oz, the 1939 one that we all really know, is like the eighth Wizard of Oz movie that had been made since Hollywood started. Yeah. Because the the Frank Obama book was so popular that it just kept getting made in different versions. And so this was kind of like them saying today, eh, let's make another alien. Why not? Well, especially if being from a popular book, I love the idea of it like, oh, let's make another Hunger Games movie or let's make another Harry Potter movie. And everyone and all of us would be like, no, but Hollywood went ahead and made an eighth Wizard of Oz movie based on the beloved Wizard of Oz book. And it was the best one. Turned out great. Yeah, but also they undid some of their notes. I mean, one of the points they wanted to do in the original Oz was they wanted to make it hip. And so they're like, I know what this Wizard of Oz needs. These songs are beautiful. They're gorgeous. Somewhere over the rainbow. But what if we had a jitterbug scene in here? That's what all the cool kids are doing now. So they really did intend to do a jitterbug scene where, like, a princess in Oz whose outlawed music has, like, a dance contest against Dorothy. So it's like Footloose and You Got Served and The Wizard of Oz. Exactly. Can you imagine? I mean, because to me, The Wizard of Oz is such a timeless film. So by hippifying it up, by trying to hippify it up, they would have made it, you know, completely dated. Sort of the way that I feel when you watch, to talk about people who can't leave their movies alone, when you watch a George Lucas Star Wars movie where he's inserted a new, brand new, shiny monster walking around in the background, it's so distracting. And it makes it look dated and it makes it look cheaper than it did before. Yeah, I actually, I have a, a like inside joke touchstone I have with a writer friend of mine is adding dewbacks, which is that lizard he added in the very beginning of A New Hope, where oh. it's just a big humped lizard with a stormtrooper riding it. Like, just that's our thing for anytime somebody messes with something wrong, a dewback rides through the background, like out of nowhere. <laughs> I think that's perfect. Yeah. Because there's no need to even do it. It's ugly, it doesn't add anything to it. And yeah. that's, a, that's a sign of a studio. That could have used the power to be like, George Lucas, just chill, dude. You're fine. You're fine. We don't need this. Folks, that is the episode for this week. And let's dive right into footnotes, because I'm so thankful to Amy Nicholson for guesting on this week's show. She's great. And we're footnoting Amy's wonderful Earwolf movie podcast, The Canon, here at Wherever You Hear Good Ass Podcasts. Also, linking to a piece she just did for the Washington Post with even more surprising ways Hollywood is way different than the average fan thinks it is. And from there, we are linking off to Cracked articles, rest of the internet articles, Marty McFly getting hit with a nuclear blast, and even more proof that movies are often saved by the boring people involved. I particularly recommend watching the video clip of the extra gunfire in the movie Predator. We talked in the episode about how the studio wanted more gunfire because they think violence is cool. And then director John McTiernan added that gunfire, but to make fun of violence, right? To make it stupid. And do you know that thing on the internet where there was a dress and everyone thought it was one of two different colors? Now that also, by the way, is happening again with a pair of shoes. They're either gray or pink or something. It's very confusing. Anyway, I think the gunfire is the the dress of 
Hollywood violence. Like You can watch that minute of Arnold Schwarzenegger shooting bullets into a tree and think it is awesome. You can also see it as silly. It's both at once. It's amazing. And I don't know, it's just a good minute. Really great. Speaking of fun, crazy things, we have t-shirts for you if you're a fan of this show. Go to podswag.com to get a Schmitty the Clam t-shirt. It's very delightful. Also, of course, the official t-shirt of Footnotes. It's all right there. And as far as other podcasting goes, Cracked Movie Club continues its John Carpenter month. We just did a live episode of this show that was a very good time, and we can't wait to bring that to you. And also, we have a new subscriber podcast going on called Cracked Mailbag. If you go to crack.com slash subscribe, you can get access to that, as well as a bunch of other things that are exclusive to subscribers of Cracked. And I also recently got to guest on Fake the Nation, which is another Earwolf show. You probably already listened to it if you like comedy and news and cool ideas. If you don't listen to it yet, go check it out. It's called Fake the Nation, and host Nagin Farsad is just the best. She also guested on our show in New York. Really thankful to her, and I think you'll like it. And as far as this show goes, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. You can hear them on Daptone Records. Our episode was engineered by Ryan Connor, edited by Chris Souza, and co-produced by Brett Rader. Find Brett at Brett, R-A-D-E-R, on Twitter. And if you love this episode, oh, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. The place where I receive studio notes and try not to be a jerk about them. You can find me on Twitter under the name at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It's all there, and I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. Hey, I'm W. Kamau Bell, and this week I'm guest hosting The Longest Shortest Time. I'm talking to my friend, Shannon Lee, a.k.a. Daughter of Bruce Lee. Daughter of the Dragon. I should just put that after you, my name. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, it should definitely be on your business card. I should hand it with sound effects, too. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bruce Lee died when Shannon was just four years old. She talks about how weird it is for the world to know so much about her father. When I realized, like, oh, I know him intimately in a way that nobody knows him, I was like, neener, neener, neener. (laughs) (laughs) She'll talk about her dad's philosophical side and what her own daughter's taking from the family legacy. She always refers to that movie as the movie where Gung Gung fights that really hairy guy. For those who are not aficionados of Way of the Dragon, that hairy guy is Chuck Norris. That's right. This week on The Longest Shortest Time. Wata! This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.